Tonight we are uh, taking a look here at Job chapter 32, and this will be the most ambitious night we have studying through the book of Job. We're going to try to get through six chapters in somewhere about an hour. We might run over a little bit more than an hour, but just be patient with me if we do, because tonight we want to consider in totality the six chapters in which a man named Elihu spoke. Now again, just to remind ourselves of the very broad outline of the book of Job, here's this godly man. He's a blameless and upright man. The anonymous author of Job tells us that he was a blameless and upright man. And God in heaven says he was a blameless and upright man. And there came a controversy in heaven over this man. Satan said that he only served God for a selfish or mercenary purpose. The only reason he served God was for the blessings he could receive from him. God had more confidence in his servant Job. And Satan begged God, let me take away his blessings and we'll see if he still serves you and if he still honors you. And so in two dramatic waves of attack, Job lost everything. He lost his wealth. He lost his family. And when I say family, he lost his 10 adult children. And he also lost the loving support and care of his wife. Uh, He lost his health and he was reduced to just a shell of his former self physically. He lost the support and comfort of his friends when at one time he was a highly esteemed and respected man in the community. Now he was considered to be a piece of dirt. But worst of all for Job, what he lost was he lost his sense of the presence and comfort of God. And Job lived with this agony for a period of some months. And over that period... Job had some friends who first just came to sit with him and support him. But when Job gave an agonized outpouring of his own uh, calamity, in Job chapter 3, the friends felt that they had to respond. And we saw it in those numerous chapters where there would be round of discussion after round of discussion. Job's friends would try to make him see that the reason why all this came upon him was that because he was a special sinner. And Job kept protesting his own innocence. It went back and forth and back and forth. Job sometimes rising up to great passionate cries of faith and trust in God and other times speaking out of the most terrible depression and dejection of soul. He'd go up and down like a roller coaster. The friends were far more consistent. Because the friends just kept hammering away at Job. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You need to repent. That's the cause of your problem. Now, we know that it was not the cause of the problem. We know that the cause of the problem was this heavenly controversy and that God was using all of this to a greater purpose, primarily to teach the angelic beings through Job. But Job didn't know it. His friends didn't know it. And therefore, the controversy existed. Well, we have followed this for chapter after chapter after chapter, right? Through 31 chapters, we followed this together. And now when we come to chapter 32, a brand new character comes upon the scene. Not Job, not his family, not, not um, Eliphaz or, or Zophar or, or um, Bildad, his other three friends. This is a man who just seems to come in. Maybe he was listening to the dispute, to the argument for a long time, but now he feels like he must speak up. And so now for six chapters, we're going to listen to a man named Elihu. Now, next week, when we get into what happened after Elihu spoke, then we come to the cream of the book of Job, right? 
I mean, I think we've had some good milk so far, and it's been great. We've enjoyed it. But we're about to come to the cream, starting with next week. But Elihu's speech is important nonetheless. Let's look into it here. Verse 1, Job 32. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Berchel the Bozite, of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So you see what happens first there in the first verse? These three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. We saw this at the end of Job 31, how Job gave an impassioned defense of his own life and of his own character. And at the end of chapter 31, he's crying out to God, put me on trial, give me an answer. God, just deal with this in some way or another. And then there's silence. And in the midst of this silence, this man Elihu starts to get angry. You see, at the end of Job's persuasive arguments, in Job chapters 28 through 31, his friends had nothing more to say. They still thought that Job was completely wrong, but he was so confirmed in his own opinions that it was useless to keep the discussion going. And so then, this man Elihu comes to the discussion. That's the first mention of Elihu in the book of Job. And because he appears, he dominates all the discussion over a period of six chapters and then very abruptly leaves. Some modern commentators think that it wasn't really part of the story and was inserted uh, later into this account by some you know, later editor of the book. I don't believe that for a moment. One reason is, is notice here, of all the friends of Job, Elihu is the only one with a genealogy. The, the, the mention of his genealogy is important because it reminds us that Elihu was not a fictional character. He appears suddenly, he disappears suddenly, yet he does belong and his speech makes sense here. What Elihu is, is the last gap of, gasp, I should say, of human wisdom, of human analysis of Job's situation. And so he's going to present his case here. And what I want you to notice in those five verses that I just read, what did we hear? His wrath was aroused. The wrath of Elihu. You see, in verse 2 it tells us that the wrath of Elihu was aroused against Job. Apparently, Elihu was a silent listener at the whole dialogue up to this point. He was angry against Job because he felt that Job justified himself rather than God. Elihu felt that Job was more concerned about being right himself than in God being right. Now listen, I can easily understand how Elihu felt this. Yet he did not understand this fundamental principle. Now we understand it, right? Because we know Job chapters 1 and 2. What we understand is both God and Job are right. They're both right. But Elihu felt if Job is right, then God has to be wrong. You see, Job's friends and Elihu himself had forced themselves into a false dilemma. They said either Job is right or God is right. They could not understand or see how both could be right. 
But there are four times in the Hebrew text in these five verses that we are told that Elihu was angry. He was angry. Who was he angry against? He was angry against Job. But he was also angry against the three friends. Verse 3, also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused. Elihu was angry at Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar because they failed to solve the controversy. They found no answer. While at the same time, in Elihu's opinion, they were too harsh against Job. Now what's interesting about this is you can just picture Elihu listening to this whole conversation, right? Thinking, well, he should say this. What well, way he should say that? Ooh, if he said this, he'd put Job into a corner. And all in his mind, replaying in his head, that if he was the one speaking, not these three old guys, that he could really come up with the answer. Now listen, what I want you to see is that Elihu is angry with everybody. I like what one commentator named Mike Mason says. I'll quote to you from him. He says, Elihu is angry with everybody. He is the classic angry young man. And from the outset, what we need to notice about this kind of anger is that it puts him in a class by himself. The fact that he is angry at both sides of the debate separates him from Job on the one hand, but it also separates him from the other three friends. Here's the other thing we know about Elihu. We know that he was angry, and we know that what? Verse 4 and 5, he was young. Because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. Out of respect for those older than he, Elihu held back for as long as he felt that he could. Now he felt that he simply had to speak. Now we don't know what the age difference was, but put it in your mind. Job and his three friends, those are the old guys. Elihu, he's the young guy. And might I say, Elihu does not represent the young generation very well. At least in my estimation. Let's go on here, verse 6. So Elihu, the son of Barachel the Buzzite answered and said, I am young in years and you are very old. Therefore I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said age should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in a man and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged understand justice. Well, here we see Elihu. Just see this guy, honestly, and you'll see it more and more throughout these chapters. He's a rude young man. Hey, you old guys haven't been able to figure this out. You know, I've noticed that old guys aren't all that smart, is basically what Elihu's saying. You see, Elihu came as a young man among older men, and because of this, he was willing to hold his words for a long time. But eventually, he said, hey, there's a spirit in a man, verse 8, And the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Elihu believed that just because Job and his three friends were older, it didn't mean that they were the only ones with the Spirit with them. They weren't the only ones who had received understanding from the Almighty. And you know what? He's absolutely right. It's possible that a young man could have understood the situation better than any of the older men. But I'll tell you this, Elihu was not the guy. It's completely possible that a younger man could have. But I'm just telling you, Elihu didn't. I just want you to picture in your mind the reaction on the faces, right? Can you picture in your mind the face of Job, the face of Eliphaz, the face of Bildad, the face of Zophar when Elihu says this, great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. Can you see the sour look on their face saying, who is this young punk telling us these things? 
They were probably united together for the first time in a long time, Job and his three friends. They they might not agree with each other, but they certainly would disagree that this young upstart could be wiser or more understanding than they were. You see, Elihu believed that the older men, for all of their supposed wisdom, didn't understand the matter at all. He thought that the old men were wrong and that the young men, in particular himself, were right. I read a quote not too long ago from the famous writer G.K. Chesterton, where he made a quote that was really relevant to this attitude of Elihu's. This is what he said. He said, I believe that what really happens in history is this. The old man is always wrong, and the young people are always wrong about what is wrong with him. The practical form it takes is this is that while the old man may stand by some stupid custom, the young man always attacks it with some theory that turns out to be equally stupid. Well, in a sense, this is Job's three friends, the old man and Elihu himself. And so, Elihu, we'll let you speak for yourself. Please tell us your wisdom. I wish, I wish Elihu would get to the point and tell us his wisdom. But we've already had nine voices, nine verses, I should say, and so far he's just introducing himself. Well, get ready. He's still going to introduce himself. Verse 10. Therefore I say, listen to me. I will also declare my opinion. Indeed, I've waited for your words. I've listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words, lest you say, we have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. Now again, verse 10. What what does he say again? Um, Hey guys, listen to me now. Didn't you already say that just a few verses before? From this request for the attention and the ear of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, I want to assume that there were sour and distasteful looks on the faces of these guys. They're like, oh man, this guy. And Elihu's going, no, 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 listen to me for sure. I can speak here. And then he says in verse 12, something surely meant to cut to the heart of Job's three friends, where he says, surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. See, Elihu was frustrated because Job's friends didn't put him in his place the way that he thought that they should. You can imagine again, Elihu following the debate, thinking of what he would say in response to Job and being frustrated that the answer of Job's friends were not as brilliant as the answers that were in Elihu's head. Okay, ready? Is he going to get to his point yet? No, not yet. We're only at verse 15. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. And I have waited because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I will also answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. Amen to that. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter else my maker would soon take me away. Well, I I think that Elihu noted that that Job's friends were exhausted by the debate. 
And so he says in verse 15, they're dismayed, they answer no more, words escape them. And Elihu's saying, you guys are tired of talking, it's a good thing you have me here because I'm not tired of talking and I can add a lot more to this debate. He says in verse 18, I am full of words. <laughs> Just imagine Job and his friends saying, you sure are, man, why don't you get to the point? And he is. For the next five chapters, he's going to drone on and on, unable to shut up, unable to let anybody else get a word in edgewise, right? Haven't we seen this pattern all throughout the book of Job? One guy speaks, another guy answers. Not with Elihu. For six long chapters, on and on and on. It's the longest speech in the book of Job. It's longer even than when God speaks at the end of the book of Job. Now again, you notice already that Elihu has spent a chapter simply introducing his speech. And he's not done yet. He's going to spend the first half of the next chapter introducing it as well. Such long introductions and wordy methods are characteristic of Elihu. By the way, he's not the last man on this earth to use too many words. And so he says, verse 21, Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man, for I don't know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. I find it interesting. Elihu was absolutely determined that he would not flatter any man except himself. I mean, in this obviously self-flattering introduction to his speech, he's clearly presented himself as smarter, wiser, and having more understanding than any other four men with him. Elihu seems painfully unaware of how he sounded and of how he looked. So here he goes, starting in chapter 33. He says, but please, Job, hear my speech. Now, by the way, I just want you to stop right there. There's something shocking right there in the first verse of chapter 33. Elihu calls Job by his first name. I want you to notice, the older men who were Job's peers, they didn't even do that. They never said, now listen, Job, you know, verbally in that culture, that's sort of like sticking your finger in a guy's chest. But this young guy, Elihu, does it right off the bat. You you can just imagine the other guys going, uh, man, he's forward. At the very beginning here, he's immediately less formal in the discussion. All right, verse one again. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth, my tongue speaks in my mouth, my words come from my upright heart, my lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand. And be heavy on you. Again, I hope you can see how I regard, I just go, what a puffed up guy. I mean, here he is, verse four, the spirit of God has made me. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. Here we see the touches of pride that marked Elihu and some young men since him. He was anxious to demonstrate to Job and his three friends that he was just as good and just as spiritual and just as wise as they were. Now look, this is what I want to point out. It is entirely possible for an Elihu to be just as good, just as spiritual, and just as wise as the three older men. It's entirely possible. But you don't demonstrate it by talking about it. You just demonstrate it by being it, by doing it. Not by talking about it the way that Elihu is. 
Indeed, we can say that Elihu thought of himself as just a little more good and more spiritual and more wise than Job and his three friends. He believed that he could be an effective spokesman for Job before God, even as Job had wanted before. I got to say, in all of this, Elihu is a very interesting specimen. He has good points and he has bad points. He's obviously proud and wordy, yet sometimes he speaks with prophetic power and clarity that you just go, wow, especially in the later chapters of his discourse. Verse 7, surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. Now, Job, I'm not going to be too hard on you now. Don't be afraid, Job. I'll be as gentle with you as I possibly can. But as we're going to see, he's not going to be all that gentle with him. Here we go, verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words, saying, I am pure, without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Do, Do you see what he accused Job here of? He accused Job of claiming to be without sin. And we've covered this time and time again in the book of Job. Elihu claimed that he had listened to Job carefully, and now he's reporting what he heard. And he's saying, Job, you said this. I am pure, without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Now, those of you who have been with me through the study of Job, did Job claim to be sinlessly perfect? No. He simply claimed that there was no special or particular sin in his life that was the cause of all this calamity that came upon him. You know what this means? It means that young Elihu had not heard Job carefully. Though Job did strongly and rightly argue that he was in general a godly man who was blameless and upright, he did not claim to be sinless or without transgression. Job certainly knew that he was a sinner in a general sense and that he could not be considered righteous compared to God. Therefore, despite Elihu's claims to the contrary, he did not accurately hear Job. He perhaps heard the sound of his words, but he wasn't really understanding. But, But he says here in verse 10, this is what Job was saying, okay? This is what Elihu claims Job said. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. Now that's a little more truthful. Job did say things that were very much like that. Here, Elihu was a little more faithful in explaining the mind of Job. Job did say sometimes that God regarded him as an enemy and had, in a sense, imprisoned Job. Now again, At the same time, Elihu misunderstood this feeling of Job's because he put it in the context of Job's claim to sinless perfection. When Elihu put the claim of Job's sense that God was his enemy next to the false claim that Job was sinlessly perfect, it made the claim that God was his enemy seem ridiculous. Where instead, when we understand it in context, we're sympathetic towards Job when he says such things. Then he can just go on here. Notice verse 12. Now, he's going to say, this is important. First, Job, you got no right to speak to God the way that you have. Now he's going to explain to Job, Job, God has spoken to you. And the first way that maybe he spoke to you, maybe he spoke to you in a dream. Look at it here, verse 12. Look, in this you are not righteous. 
I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Now again, Elihu is speaking in his wordy and I would say imprecise way. Did you see what he said in verse 12? I will answer you. For God is greater than man. He says it in a way that, well, like, oh, this is big news to this group. I mean, they've been saying this all throughout the discussion. And then he goes on, verse 13. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. Now, I've got to say, with that phrase, Elihu spoke the truth. Like a lot of young men... He was somewhat proud and somewhat too confident in his own wisdom, in his own analysis, yet at the same time, he certainly was correct on some points. He was certainly correct in telling Job that God did not owe him, or anyone else for that matter, an explanation for what God does, and that Job was wrong to demand such an explanation. But then he says in verse 14, For God may speak in one way or in another. Elihu's thought here is that perhaps God had spoken to Job, but Job did not perceive it. Maybe it was through a dream. Maybe it was through a vision of the night. Whatever it was, Job wasn't paying attention. That's Elihu's point here. And then starting at verse 19, he says, Job, not only did God speak to you in a dream, perhaps, but God is speaking to you in your sufferings. Look at it here, verse 19. Man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones, so that his life abhors bread, and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones stick out, which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near the pit, and his life to the executioners. If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he's gracious to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom." His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to his God and he will delight in him. For he shall see his face with joy. For he restores man to his righteousness. And then he looks at men and says, I've sinned and perverted what is right. And it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit and his life shall see the light. Now here, After suggesting that God spoke to Job in a dream, now he says, Job, maybe the Lord was speaking to you in your physical suffering. He says, maybe there's a messenger from him. Verse 23, he he did send a messenger to you, Job. The problem was that you didn't receive it. But then I want you to notice in verse 24, he says, if this messenger from God is received, Job, if you would only listen to what God is trying to say to you, Elihu saying, then God would be gracious to you. That's in verse 24. You see, in the view of Elihu, it would only, if Job would only receive and respond to God's messenger, if he would only admit to God's uprightness and righteousness, then he would be restored to God's favor. And I have to say, in verses 24 through 27, There is a beautiful and a powerful description of what happens when a sinner turns to the Lord. It's fantastic. 
Look at that again in verses 24 through 27. When a sinner returns to the Lord, he receives God's grace. It says he is gracious to him. And then in verse 24, he's rescued from destruction. He's delivered from going down to the pit. Verse 25, he's healed. His flesh shall be young like a child's. Um, He's going to see his relationship with God restored again. That's in verse 26. He shall pray to God and he will delight with him and he shall see his face with joy. And then he'll also repent before men. That's in verse 27. He looks at men and says, I have sinned. Now I have to say, I go, Elihu, you're brilliant. You've just given us a beautiful description of how God restores a sinner when the sinner comes to repentance. It's beautiful, Elihu. There's just one problem. It doesn't speak to Job's situation at all. Now, don't we find, again, the same problem? I think this is so interesting about Elihu. He listened to Job's friends, and he thought that the problem was they weren't offering a good enough argument against Job. Basically, though, Elihu comes and offers the same argument. Maybe he does it with a little more eloquence, maybe with a little more dramatic flourish, maybe with a little more energy because he's young, but it's basically the same argument. And it's wrong, even though it's right in many cases, it was wrong in Job's case. Because what's Elihu's essential message? The same as the friends. Job, the problem is that you're a sinner and you're blaming God. If you would give glory to God and repent, everything would get better. That's it. That's his message. And so it's a powerful thing that he does in describing what it's like for a man to return to God in those verses. Now, verse 29, Elihu's going to plead with Job to listen to him. He says, Behold, God works all these things, twice in fact, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Give ear, Job, and listen to me. Hold your peace, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Hold your peace, and I will teach you wisdom. In verse 29, when he says, Behold, God works all these things twice, in fact, three times with the men, right there, Elihu is wanting Job to understand that in Elihu's perspective, God was in fact being patient with Job. Job felt that God was being harsh and treating him like an enemy. Elihu wanted Job to understand how easy or how patient God was being with him. But then he goes off into verse 31 again. Hold your peace and I will teach you wisdom. Again, it's almost funny. It's almost tragic to hear young, angry Elihu saying this to the noble Job. But perhaps Job stirred to respond to the young Elihu. Maybe you you could see Job's mouth moving. Hey, now wait. Elihu just plows right through him. Maybe Job just rolled his eyes at Elihu. Whatever it was, Elihu says to him, Now hold your peace, Job. Nothing from you. I'm not done yet. I'm on a roll here. And so he keeps going on into chapter 34. Verse 1, Elihu further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men. Again, do you get kind of the feeling of Elihu here? Just over and over again. Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. Okay, again, just an introduction to his words. Blah, 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 blah. Now verse uh, 2. For Job has said, I am righteous. But God has taken away my justice. 
Should I lie concerning my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men? For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight with God. Do you see this now? In verse 6, he is claiming that Job says, my wound is incurable. Now that kind of sounds something like Job would say, right? Though I am without transgression. Well, again, it depends on what sense Elihu means that. I think Elihu means that in the sense of Job saying, I am sinlessly perfect. And again, we know Job never said that. It's another mischaracterization of what Job said. Job certainly did claim to be wounded so severely by his trials that it seemed incurable, yet he never claimed to be sinless. He only claimed that there was not some special sin that made him the target of the special catastrophe. But then did you see what he says in verses 7 and 8? What man is like Job who goes in company with the workers of iniquity? It seems unthinkable that Elihu believed that Job actually was in the company of wicked men. Perhaps he meant... uh, that what he considered to be Job's confused moral thinking led him to associate with the morally corrupt. But we just kind of go, man, Elihu, what what are you saying to Job? And then verse 9, this is what he accuses him of. For he, meaning Job, for he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Now Job certainly said nothing like this. Now we can understand why Elihu thought this about Job because Job claimed to delight in God and now he seemed to claim that it profited him nothing. But Elihu is taking general trains of Job's thought and extending them further than Job ever did. Going on here now, verse 10. Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays a man according to his work, and he makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth? Or who appointed him over the whole world? If he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. Here... Elihu is trying to convince Job and his three friends of the righteousness of God's moral order. The point of it here is in verse 11. For he repays a man according to his work. Elihu followed the simple prescription, you always reap what you sow equation that was earlier promoted by Eliphaz in the very first speech of Job's friends. Way back in Job chapter 4, Eliphaz was saying very similar things. Job... You reap what you sow. You've you've reaped a catastrophe. You must have sown sin. I need to speak about this just for a moment. Many people today believe the idea of Elihu and Eliphaz and believe it as an absolute spiritual law that you reap what you sow. I'm going to tell you here, and I hope this doesn't shock any of you, I do not believe that to be an absolute spiritual law. I believe it to be a general operation of God's working, and especially in the context in which God quotes it, in which God presents it there in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. But let me just tell you this. 
If it were an absolute spiritual law, we'd all go to hell, right? If you reap what you sow is an absolute spiritual law, then you and I are destined to hell. Paul simply related the principle of sowing and reaping to the way that we manage our resources before the Lord. And by the way, he used the same picture in 1 Corinthians and in 2 Corinthians. Now, of course, this is a general principle that's true in life. Wouldn't you say in life that it's true that in general, you get out of it what you put into it? We see this at the Bible college, right? We see students who come and they don't seem to care much about their studies. They don't put much effort into the classes. Surprise, surprise, they don't get a lot out of them. Then you see other students, man, they're industrious. They put a lot of work into the classes. They study. They even study a little extra. They're working hard. And what do you know? They get a lot out of the classes. So you reap what you sow is certainly a valid general principle, especially in the context of stewardship, in which Paul was putting it in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. But to regard it as if the whole universe is governed by some spiritual law of karma, it's just not true. Can I tell you, God's grace breaks that law of you reap what you sow. And here, Elihu is simply applying that as if it were a concrete spiritual principle, spiritual law that governed the universe to Job's situation. But then he says in verse 12, Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. Well, Elihu was correct. But but all of Job's friends and Job himself agreed on, on that. The problem was that Elihu and Job and his three friends seemed to assume that God would never do mysterious things. And they were too confident to understand God and his ways. So he says, going on here into verse 16, If you have understanding, hear this. You know, I I should have gone through and counted them. I should have gone through and counted all the places where Elihu basically says, Listen to me. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king you are worthless and to nobles you are wicked? Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are the work of his hands. In a moment they die in the middle of the night. The people are shaken and pass away. The mighty are taken away without a hand. In verse 17, he says there, Will you condemn him who is just? Elihu took Job's agonized cries to God as if Job were condemning God. And might I say that was an unfair assumption. Job's agony was deeply rooted in the sense that he did love God and that he did respect God's justice. That's what made the whole thing so difficult for Job. And so again, In his own wordy way, Elihu is emphasizing the perfect justice of God, which he's going to continue to do, starting here at verse 21. Again, wordy, basically saying the same thing over and over again, just with lots of words, starting at verse 21. For his eyes are on the way of man, and he sees all of his steps. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the work of iniquity hide themselves. We, he, for he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Therefore he knows their works and overthrows them in the night and they are crushed and he strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways. 
so that they cause the cry of the poor to come to him, and he hears the cry of the afflicted. When he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him, whether it is a nation or a man alone, that the hypocrite should not reign, lest the people be ensnared? Look, the whole core of this is again in verse 21. His eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. Job, God is perfect in justice, and you've forgotten that. That's why you're crying out in your agony before God. I do find it very interesting that he says here, though, that the cry of the poor comes to him. Did you notice that in those verses? Now, I have to say, in my study on this passage, I came across such an interesting story by Adam Clark. Adam Clark had a very interesting story to tell on this observation that God hears the cry of the poor. He goes on to explain how there was once, uh, you know, a century or so ago uh, at a time in Scotland where um, they were trying to oppress people who wanted to follow Christianity. You, you had to be of the state religion or you couldn't have any faith at all. And so there were some people in a poor village that had a home Bible study sort of group going on, a time of fellowship and reading the word. It was great edification. And the rich, great man who was the Lord over that region tried to shut him down. And so some poor, simple, holy woman comes to the door of this great man in Scotland and she comes to make her appeal. And this is what she said. The guy opened the door and he says, well, what's your business with me? You know, he sees this poor, wretched woman in front of him. And in response to his very haughty and overbearing tone, she says this, Sir, I, I can't read it with a Scottish accent like, like Adam Clark wrote it, so I'll just try to read it. Sir, we're a handful of pure folk over at this village who are striving to serve God according to our conscience and to get souls saved, and you persecute us. And I'm coming to beg you to let us alone. And if you don't, we'll pray you dead. And he said instantly, the man said, well, you know, he thought within himself, I don't know if this woman's for real or not, but I'm not taking the chance. And he let her carry on the meeting. Anyway, here's the idea, though, is that when the poor of the earth cry out to God when they're oppressed, God hears them. Why? Verse 30, that the hypocrite should not reign lest the people be ensnared. Elihu thought it was important to emphasize these points because without them, the moral order of society would be overturned. If these things were shaken, it's almost like he's thinking, Job, if you're right, and if it's not all a simple cause and effect world, then everything's going to be shaken at the very foundations of society. And so, now comes Elihu, going to give some advice to Job. I don't think he went over and put his arm around his shoulder, but you could picture that in your mind if you want to. Now, Job... Let me give you some advice. Verse 31. For as anyone said to God, I have borne chastening and will offend no more. Teach me what I do not see. If I've done iniquity, I will do no more. Should he repay it according to your terms just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I. Therefore, speak what you know. Here, Elihu spoke the words of humble repentance that he thought Job should have said. Job was the anyone that Elihu had in mind in verse 31, where he said, has anyone said to God? It's like, Job, this is what you should say to God. You should manfully take the chastening that God gives you. You should promise to offend no more. And you should humbly submit to God and ask him to teach you. 
And basically, verse 33, he says, should he repay it according to your terms? Elihu criticized here what he thought was Job's arrogance. Should God be just to what you think he should be? And should God do exactly what you think he should do? Verse 33, you must choose and not I, therefore speak what you know. Again, I find this startling. Young Elihu is trying to persuade Job with ultimatums and pressure that the three friends of Job did not use. Hey, hey Job, you've got to make a choice now. The other friends never put this kind of pressure on him. I have to say it's painful for me to see the young, brash Elihu speak to the godly Job in this manner. Now, yet we remember that there's no doubt that Elihu had the best of intentions. Honestly, Elihu believed he was helping Job. Verse 34, men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job was tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin and claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. I have to say, I read those verses and I, I almost put my hand over my mouth. Good heavens, Elihu, how could you speak this way to Job? Do you understand what he said to Job in verse 36? Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost. Young Elihu thought that the problem was, was that Job hadn't suffered enough. Well, Job, you're almost there. Maybe if he lost a few more things then you'd really have your heart turned to the Lord in repentance. He thought that a little more suffering, if he were tried to the utmost, that it might bring Job to repentance. Now listen, Elihu said this because he genuinely believed that Job was getting himself deeper and deeper into sin. We know from Job chapters 1 and 2 that Job was in fact a blameless and upright man who spoke from the fog of pain and the pain of his crisis and in the presence of the misunderstanding of his friends. Elihu thought that Job's problems began with his sin and got worse as he rebelled and as he scorned the advice of his friends and as he multiplied his words against God. Well, on this very harsh tone, he's going to continue on here. Verse 1 of chapter 35. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? Again, we just say, verse 2, do you think this is right? Elihu had just badgered Job severely and accused him of adding rebellion to his sin and ignoring the wise counsel of his friends. And so to emphasize the point, he jabs a finger at Job and he says, do you think this is right? For you say, verse 3, what profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? Elihu accused Job of a cold calculation, of saying that he denied God's moral order and said that there was no point to sinning or not sinning. Of course, Elihu is totally putting words into Job's mouth. Verse 4, I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds, they are higher than you. If you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. 
Again, it's very interesting in verse 4 where he says, I will answer you and your companions with you. As we've seen, Elihu's arguments and ideas are substantially the same as the other three friends, aren't they? Isn't it all rooted in the same core of saying, Job, you have to repent? But what's fascinating about this is Elihu thought of himself as different and thought that he could correct not only Job, but also Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far. And so he invites them, verse 5, Look to the heavens and see, behold the clouds, they are higher than you. He's saying, look, as high as those clouds are up in the sky, that's how far God is above you and even further. It's interesting. When the Lord told Abraham to look up in the sky, what did he show him? The stars. What does Elihu say? Look up in the sky and see the clouds. See the clouds as a wall between heaven and earth. They're a picture of God's distance from man, of how unreachable he is and how impassive he is. And in verse 7, if you are righteous, what do you give him? Job, God is so far beyond you that there's nothing that man can do to God's benefit. Elihu felt that Job had lost his fear and godly appreciation. Now, going on to verse 9. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? They cry out and he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Again, you know what I find so fascinating about this? is Elihu's analysis and his description is so poetic and so beautiful, but it's misapplied to Job. It's almost like if somebody really was in sin and stubborn and didn't want to repent, you're like, read these chapters of Elihu. This is what you need to read. But for Job, that wasn't the problem. And now you see Elihu, this brilliant, angry, young man, brilliant, but misguided in his analysis. You see, Elihu noted that men seek God in their time of need, but it's often not sincere. And that's why he says in verse 12, they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. When men cry out to God with that kind of insincerity, God does not answer them. And that's why he's saying, listen, you get the point here, right? Job, that's why he's not answering you. You complain, Job, that God's not talking to you, right? Hasn't this been Job's constant complaint? Well, let me tell you why, Job. It's because you're a proud and insincere man. Verse 13. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. And now, because he is not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. Elihu resumed his harsh approach towards Job. His idea was that God did not hear Job because he was a false and empty talker. You say that you do not see him, yet his justice is right before him. And again, this is so harsh. Do you know what he means by this? Job, you say you don't see God? Look at the graves of your ten children. His justice is right before you. Job, you say you don't see God? Look at your bank statement, Job. It's empty, right? That's God's justice. It's right before you. On and on and on. You see this? Job, you say you don't see God? Look at your own physical affliction, these bleeding, pussy, oozing sores all over your body. That's the hand of God's justice against you. 
say, Job, that's harsh, isn't it? Because it's not true in Job's case. Well, again, um, chapter 36 now, he's going to teach Job more about the justice and righteousness of God. Elihu proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you. Again, you know, you just love the way this guy begins all of his little speeches. That there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Now, again, okay, look. Obviously, I have a negative attitude towards Elihu, right? Have you picked up on that somehow? (laughs) By the way, you should know that some people don't. Some people think Elihu is just the most brilliant analyst of Job's situation at all. I cannot comprehend such a thing. But listen, even I don't believe that when Elihu said, one who is perfect in knowledge is with you, I don't think he was talking about himself. He might have been, okay? (laughs) But even I don't believe Elihu was capable of such arrogant pride. I I think he was talking about the presence of the Lord with him. I hope that's what he was talking about. I don't know. I'm assuming we'll see Elihu in heaven. We're going to have to ask him about that one. (laughs) Elihu, please tell me, who was the one perfect in knowledge who was with you? Anyway, he's, he's obviously too confident, even if he's talking about God, he's too confident in his ability to, to bring forth God's wisdom, right? And so this is what he says in verse 5. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He's mighty in the strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked. He gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever and they are exalted. If they're bound in fetters, held in cords of affliction, he tells them their work and their transgressions, and that they've acted defiantly, and also opens their ear to instruction and commands them that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword. And they shall die without knowledge. Now again, Elihu is trying to guide Job back to God. Okay, that's really what he's trying to do. And so he says, listen, verse 5, Listen, Job, behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He'll accept you, Job, but this is what you have to do. Verse 7, he does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous. Now again, How many times has Job sat there and cried out, God, where are you? Won't you just look upon me? And he says, you know, Job, God doesn't take his eyes from the righteous. If you feel God's taken his eyes from you, you're not righteous. Again, it's just back to the same point over and over again. Verse 12, if they do not obey, they perish by the sword. Listen, Job If you don't obey, if you don't turn back to the Lord, you will perish by the sword. And if you don't repent, you're going to face the sad fate of the hypocrite. Look at it here, starting in verse 13. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth, and their life um, ends among the perverted persons. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. You know, I have to say that I think Elihu thought that Job was a hypocrite for continuing to deny his guilt. He felt that Job was putting himself under a greater and greater condemnation. He goes, you know what, Job? Your end is that you're going to die and be judged just like the perverted people. Now, 
starting in verse 16, Elihu's going to begin another one of his speeches. And he's going to talk about what God would have done for Job if Job would have repented. Look at it here, starting verse 16. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of richness. But you're filled with the judgment do the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Because there is wrath, beware lest he take you away with one blow. For a large ransom would not help you avoid it. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. Verse 16. Elihu here tells Job about what God would have done for him. He would have brought you out of dire distress if you would have repented by now. But instead, verse 17, you are filled with the judgment due the wicked. Again, I just want to emphasize how similar Elihu's analysis is to the three friends. For them, Job's problems were easy to diagnose. Job did not have the blessings of God that God gives to the obedient and the repentant. Therefore, Job was not obedient and he needed to repent. It's very simple to them. By the way, look at verse 19. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Here, I think he's stabbing the knife in again. He is assuming what many people assume. They see a godly man who's rich and they say, oh, he's carnal. He trusts in his riches. No, not necessarily. Instead, look at what he says in verse 21. After shoving the knife in, now he twists it a little more here in verse 21. You have chosen this rather than affliction. Job, all this suffering and agony is your choice. It could be different as soon as you repent and turn back to God. By the way, can I just say, it was this kind of counsel that Job drove, drove Job crazy. Because it demanded that he forsake his integrity and make a show of repentance just to please his friends. Listen, you and I both know that it was not due to some special sin that Job ended up in this situation, right? So what's Job supposed to do? Okay, I'm a big sinner. All right? I'm sorry. Get on his knees. I repent. I repent and make something up. And I repent of this, make something up. Fine, friends. Are you happy? Job knew that wouldn't honor God. He knew it wouldn't. And we got to respect Job for holding on to his integrity in the midst of this relentless beating from his friends. Verse 22. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Or who has assigned him in his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Men look on it from afar. And here again, if you take a look at verse 22, behold, God is exalted by his power. Elihu again wanted to exalt God in the eyes of Job. What he felt Job's problem was, one of them, he felt one of Job's problem was that he had such a low view of God and he had too high of a view of himself. Now, by the way, shouldn't we say that this is exactly the problem with many people? Many people who are going through some kind of crisis or catastrophe in their life, they come to you for counseling. They come to you for prayer. My life is falling apart. I'll tell you, many times that is their problem. We, we just wish Elihu is like a powerful gun pointed in the wrong direction. He's pointed at Job when he should go find a real sinner to make such convincing arguments to. A real sinner to say what he says in verse 24. Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. 
Job himself had magnified the work of God, which was well and was well aware of the power, majesty, and glory of God. Now, by the way, I have to say, starting at verse 22, a change seems to come over Elihu. Starting at verse 22, he starts pounding on Job less, and he starts lifting God up more. And this is interesting. Look at how it continues here. Verse 25. Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which clouds drop down and pour abundantly on men. Indeed, how can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? Look, he scatters his light upon it and covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges the peoples, and he gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike. The thunder declares that the cattle also concerning the rising storm. Now again, Elihu here is promoting the concept of the power and the transcendence of God. He heard and sensed how Job demanded answers from God, and he counseled Job to understand, Job, God is just beyond you. And I have to say, this was Elihu's most powerful and truthful argument, yet it was based on the premise that Job had to do this in light of his own great sin against God. I'll say it again, it was a powerful, good principle wrongly applied to Job's situation. But you have to say it's brilliant what Elihu says here. Elihu offers to us all the contradictions of youth, brilliance and arrogance combined into one. Verse 27, he says, For he draws up drops of water which distill as rain from the midst. In this beautiful section, Elihu analyzed the water cycle of evaporation, distillation, and rain and used it as an example of God's brilliance and beauty as a designer. I want you to notice something. It seems that at this time, and I think that you'll see as we read through verse chapter 37, I don't think I'm reading too much into the text here. I think at this time, I want you to picture in your mind all these guys outside, right? There's Job, there's Eliphaz and Bildad and so far. Here's Elihu, you know, he's not tired yet. He's still speaking, young man, lots of energy. But what's coming on the horizon? What's approaching them swiftly? A storm. You know how the air starts to feel different, you know, when a storm comes? And then the wind blows, and then the, the, the clouds are darkening. And, and hasn't, hasn't Elihu made reference to the clouds and the, the drops of rain and the thunder? A storm is approaching. A storm is coming. And Elihu brings it into his discussion. Look at it. He's talking about how the storm stirs his soul. Verse 1 of chapter 37. At this my heart also trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice. I mean, can't you just hear the thunder crash to the ground? And Elihu says, hear, hear, this is the thunder of God's voice. And the rumbling that comes from his mouth, he sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After a voice roars, he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain them with his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does things which we cannot comprehend. And again, I think this is amazing. I really believe that at this point, the storm is rolling in, and it just has that way of just rolling in, coming across. I'll never forget it. Sometimes a couple times I've been out driving, and, and, and you have this strange sensation of driving, and it's, 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 it's you know dry, and you're driving along the road, and, and then you see clouds up ahead, and then all of a sudden, it's like you just passed into a downpour. 
It's almost like there was a border. And on this side of the border, it's not raining. On this side of the border, it's raining in buckets down from the heavens. And this sort of storm is fast approaching and you can hear the thunder. You can see the lightning. You can feel the moisture in the air. You can sense the storm coming. And listen, wouldn't you have to say that a storm is an amazing example of the power of God? Here it is, it's coming. And Elihu's saying, listen, here it comes, the power of God. Job, think of the power of God, his majesty. Verse 6, for he says to the snow, fall on the earth. Likewise, to the gentle rain and the heavy rain of his strength, he seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. The beasts go into dens and remain in their lairs. From the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind and the cold from the scattering winds of the north. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen. Also with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds. He scatters the bright clouds. They swirl about being turned by his guide that they may do whatever he commands them. On the face of the whole earth, he causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. You see, Elihu previously spoke of God's voice as being like the mighty thunder. And now he says that mighty voice of God, it commands the snow. It commands the gentle rain. It commands the heavy rain. And the breath makes ice and freezes the broad waters. And then he says in verse 7, he seals the hand of every man that men may know his work. The idea there is when it's all frozen over in the winter and no man can do any work, God has sealed the work of every man. The farmer just has to sit back and do nothing during the winter, right? Does a little work in his workshop out in the barn, right? He can't plow the field, he can't plant the corn, he can't do anything like that, right? The, the, The weather has stilled his hand. And then everything is just still and then the the storm comes and it swirls about. It's all guided by God. And in some ways, a storm is almost an ideal metaphor for the spiritual problems in Job. From outward appearance, a storm is all chaos. But yet you can say that God guides it in the minute detail. So here, verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge. Why are your garments hot when he quiets the earth by the south wind? With him have you spread out the skies strong as a cast metal mirror? You can picture this, can't you? You can picture um, Elihu gesturing to the skies, showing this, look, Job, over there, see this, see all that. All of it displays the great, as he says in verse 14, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Now for the last words of Elihu here in verse 19. Teach us what we should say to him. For we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. Should he be told that I wish to speak? If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. Even now men cannot look at the light when it's bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. He comes from the north as golden splendor, with God as awesome majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He's excellent in power, in judgment, abundant in justice. He does not oppress, therefore men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. In these last few words, Elihu confronted what he believed to be Job's arrogance in saying that man deserved an audience or justification of God. Did you see that in verse 19? Job, teach us what we should say to him. 
Job, you insist that God owes us an audience. Then please tell me what we should say to him. Verse 23, as for the Almighty, we cannot find him. Now, Elihu's, one of Elihu's big themes is the transcendence of God. The fact that God is so far away that man can't really connect with him, right? Over and over again. And it's very said, very verse 23, As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. Now what I find interesting in Elihu's description of the storm, if you notice at the end of the chapter, didn't it seem like the storm clouds were clearing, right? Does, doesn't he say that? Um, even now men cannot look at the light when it's bright in the skies, when the wind has passed and cleared them. Now I have to believe that at that point Elihu was not speaking of what he actually saw, but he was speaking of what he knew when, when storms clear. Because we're going to notice, next chapter, the storm is right there. And you know who comes to speak in the storm? God himself. Now there are people who think that Elihu was brilliant. That Elihu offered the best analysis of Job's situation. And what Elihu really did was he paved the way for God. I don't believe so. I think Elihu is the last gasp of human wisdom analyzing the situation and coming up totally short, totally inadequate to understand the situation. Because what's so funny is almost his closing words is, and as for the Almighty, we cannot find him. And on the same storm that Elihu was talking about, God's going to come to Job in the storm. Isn't that funny? You have to admit it's It's interesting. God is so far away, we can't find him. And it's as if God says in the next chapter, here I am. (laughs) Now, what people are startled about is that in nowhere does God specifically rebuke Elihu. The other three friends are specifically rebuked by God, which we'll see in, in a couple weeks, okay? And so they think, because Elihu is not specifically rebuked, maybe God thought he was smart and good and okay. I don't think so. I think God gave Elihu, young, angry Elihu, sometimes brilliant, sometimes brash. I think he gave young Elihu the worst punishment he could have given him. He ignored him. God says, forget this. Go sit down, Elihu. You know, th- get a few more years under your belt and then come back and play with the big boys. I'm going to talk with Joe. That's what it seems to me like God was saying. And so it's absolutely interesting how here um, Elihu believed that God was utterly beyond and utterly unreachable and God has now come in this storm and he is going to speak to Job. It almost seems to me that God had finally heard enough of the almost right wisdom of man. Isn't that a great way to describe their wisdom? It was almost right. You can't say it was all wrong. It was like a powerful wisdom, a powerful weapon, I should say. There's Eliphaz, there's Bildad, there's Zophar, and now there's Elihu. Powerful weapons just pointed in the wrong direction. They should have found a sinner to point their arguments at. They didn't belong to Job. And now, God has finally heard enough of all this talk about him being so far beyond the reach of man, 
that God is about to confront not only Job, but his three friends with both his words and his presence. And next week is spectacular when God does that. And so we leave Elihu, talkative Elihu, eloquent Elihu. Listen, when Elihu describes what a man has to do to get right with God and the blessings that come from it, we want to applaud, Elihu, you're brilliant. When Elihu describes these things about God coming in on the storm, that is an incredibly beautiful poetic passage. We don't want to dismiss Elihu. He just has some of the faults that are characteristic to some youth. But, but yet he has some of their strengths as well. So next week, we're going to see what God says in the midst of this. Father, as we pray right now, we come to the end of this 37th chapter of the book of Job. Lord, we just kind of confess that we're tired of hearing man talk. We're tired of the almost right answers of man. We pray that you'd really prepare us to receive what you have to say to us in your wisdom next week. And thank you, Lord, for this book of Job. Thank you, Lord, for showing us what we can learn from the wisdom of man and what we must turn to you for. Help us to hold our integrity fast before you. In Jesus' name, amen.